This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. It is said that all religions, philosophies, and ideologies are attempts to free one from pain and bring joy. How this is accomplished differs from school to school, and in reality, there is no sane person who doesn't seek to escape pain and move toward some form of happiness. And yet, Those who are deeply committed to a spiritual path know that more often than not, joy is found by navigating through pain. It may be physical or emotional, and it can be found in empathy and compassion, that is, really suffering with others, with loving kindness. In the book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide, Father Adam Bucko shares a great deal of his life walking with those for whom acts of love, charity, and active sharing are rare gifts. Father Bucko belongs to a movement that embraces both the contemplative life and social activism. Today, we'll discuss how our lives can be enhanced by both sitting and standing. A bit about our guest. Adam Bucko has taught engaged contemplative spirituality for two decades on three continents and co-authored two books, Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation, and the New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. He is widely known among new monastics, religious and social progressives, and by spiritual seekers across generations through his work with young activists. Committed to an integration of contemplation and just practice, he co-founded an award-winning nonprofit, the Reciprocity Foundation, where he spent 15 years working with homeless and LGBT youth living on the streets of New York City, providing spiritual care, developing programs to end youth homelessness, and articulating a vision for spiritual mentoring in a post-religious world. He currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Episcopal Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. We welcome to Common Threads, Father Adam Bucko. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for this invitation. Oh, certainly. We're very happy to have you. My first question, you refer to someone in the beginning of the book as a renegade rabbi, and I was curious about what that is. He seems to be a great person of service, so I'm I'm just curious about the renegade part. I mean, did he leave the his his Jewish congregation was he excommunicated if there is such a thing as excommunication what 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 did you mean by renegade well i mean that he was uh, a very non-traditional rabbi in a sense even though he received this very traditional training and trained with some of the uh, hasidic spiritual masters who survived the holocaust um, and carried those teachings uh, back to New York City. Instead of working at a traditional congregation, he decided that 
uh, his calling was to create a new kind of a congregation on the streets of New York City among young people who were running away from home, running away from abuse, among young people who were oftentimes recruited to, uh, to into the underworld, so to speak, and engaged in sex work and, uh, and other things. And so that became his congregation. That's where he was looking for the sparks of light, as, uh, as he would say, among some of the darkest places in Manhattan. Um, and so that's why I call him a renegade rabbi, because uh, in so many ways, he operated in this kind of an out-of-the-box um, place, you know, and ways uh, uh, where he had this very non-traditional and yet profound ministry uh, to young people. And as a result, he was able to really change many, many lives and save many lives. Is he still involved in this particular ministry? No, uh, for the past 10 years or so, he's been primarily kind of uh, in seclusion, so to speak. Now he's quite old, you know, really approaching uh, the end of his life. So the last uh, decade or so has been just kind of spending time uh, in prayer. But many of the people that he has trained uh, still continue uh, this work. And and it certainly sounds by reading your book, that that you are a devotee of his, if you will, or that you are attempting to replicate the kind of work that he did, correct? Yes, to some extent. I mean, he was definitely uh, a mentor of mine uh, from whom I really learned what it means to be a socially engaged contemplative. Uh, and he passed on to me this kind of a very specific way of, of, of working with people, uh, not shying away from approaching people's heartbreaks, people's suffering, and uh, being able to kind of operate in that world of suffering uh, in this kind of a prayerful way. So he's provided me with a lot of guidance. We've been close uh, now for more than 20 years. I consider him to be one of my spiritual elders. My work on the streets happened in a slightly different way, uh, but the methodology that I picked up from him was definitely, definitely very present. And I'm still very close with him. So he's, you know, he's been really a mentor and a source of light and inspiration for me. One other person... I'd like you to share on is uh, tell us the story of the man talking to an empty chair. And we're not talking about Clint Eastwood here, are we? This is a, a, a whole different episode. Who, who was the man talking to an empty chair? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the empty chair uh, story that I uh, that I use uh, in my book uh, is actually uh, a well-known uh, story told by uh, many people, I think. Uh, I retell this story in my book because in my view, uh, this story really captures um, as to what 
contemplative prayer can be uh, and what is the best way to kind of begin to pray in this way. And so the story goes and, you know, people might have heard this story um, is that uh, essentially this elderly man is at a hospital and um, his daughter, knowing that her father wasn't really a churchgoer and feeling somewhat concerned about the well-being of his soul, so to speak, she contacted a local priest and asked him to, uh, to visit her father and to pray with him and to make sure that he's kind of in a good place spiritually, so to speak. And so when the priest arrived, he found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows uh, uh, and an empty chair besides his bed. Seeing the empty chair, the priest uh, said, I guess you were expecting me, you know. And the man answered, no, who are you? <laughs> I was not expecting you. And so and then the priest introduced himself. Uh, um, and he told him that his daughter asked him to visit him, uh, you know, and to have some spiritual conversations with him. Um, and that's when the man explained that, um, you know, he said that he had never told anyone this, um, but uh, all of his life, uh, you know, he's been actually searching for a way um, that could enable him to pray and to feel connected to the divine. And so, you know, he would occasionally go to church and hear sermons about contemplative prayer and other things. And all of that was just so abstract that it uh, would always just leave him confused. Uh, and, and so then one day, uh, a couple of years before this happened, his best friend said to him uh, that prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with God. And then this friend suggested to him that all you need to do is just basically sit down on a chair and then place an empty chair in front of you and, um, you know, in faith, imagine that God is sitting in that empty chair. Uh, and then simply talk to God in a way that you would talk to your best friend, uh, telling God about your difficulties, about your pain, about your challenges, but also about your joys. And just simply expressing yourself in this way. And if we do that, the friend said, sometimes that means that there would be a lot of tears. Because when we really let go, when we really um, turn our sorrows into this kind of a cry of the heart, uh, things happen in us. Um, and so this is what this man practiced. He would talk to God in this way. And then once he was done, talking to God, he would simply rest in this kind of receptive silence, really feeling the presence of the divine, really feeling like he was uh, received and loved and held by what some people call this kind of a motherly presence of God. So that's the, that's the story. And, you know, this kind of way of praying, of course, is very close to what I learned from my rabbi, from the Hasidic tradition, but also in my own tradition, the Christian contemplative tradition, uh, people like Saint Teresa of Avila, 
defined prayer as this kind of an intimate sharing between friends where we simply begin to take time frequently to be alone with the one who we know loves us. And so this is why I wanted to share this story, you know, because so many people uh, have difficulties with, with, with praying. Uh, and I think that this story can help all of us to simply connect with the divine in this very simple but profound way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Father Adam Bucko, and the book we're talking about is Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. Father, you grew up in totalitarian Poland. Uh, Tell us, if you can, how having done that, has affected your outlook on life and your practice, both contemplative and and social? Yes, I was born in 1975 uh, in the town of Białystok uh, in Poland. And that was the time of the totalitarian regime. That was also the time of the solidarity movement and other movements where literally probably more than 70% of uh, citizens of our country uh, functioned outside of the official system with our own ways of distributing information, with our own ways of trying to organize, um, you know, the distribution of food and, and, and other things. And so growing up in that kind of a setting, like everyone else, I, of course, realized very early on that something was wrong with the world that I was born into. Um, people were often, you know, sent to jail just for expressing uh, their longings for, for freedom, for security, for, um, uh, you know, wanting to express what was really on their hearts, for wanting to re-envision us to what was possible in our country. Um, And so early on, I was really kind of attracted to some of those people who not only talked about the new world, but who were actually working for that new world. And some of those people were courageous priests. Um, uh, You know, Poland at that point was uh, over 90 probably 7% or so Roman Catholic. And so churches became these kinds of free places for us where we could go and really talk freely, where we could go and talk about the dream that we felt God had for us, the dream of freedom, the dream of democracy, the dream of mutuality and this kind of a reciprocal way of being with each other. Um, and there were a couple of different priests who was these kinds of Gandhian figures in Poland, preaching nonviolence, uh, speaking truth to power. Um, and I was very moved by them. Uh, and as a child, I just wanted to imitate them, you know. So when other 
children were playing outside. I would stay inside trying to build a little altar at home and then engage other kids from the neighborhood to essentially trying to recreate church in my home, trying to, you know, wrap myself in some kind of a white blanket and, and trying to celebrate the Eucharist as a child, just kind of mimicking those priests because somehow I felt that I, I, I wanted what they had. And what I saw in them was this kind of connection that they had to something that was beyond, um, you know, anything that humans could do on their own. They were connected to this kind of a force that just uh, infused them with power, with courage, with fearlessness, with compassion with a conviction that even though we're being attacked on daily basis, nonetheless, uh, the way of love and nonviolence was the right way to respond. Uh, so I remember one of my first kind of spiritual experiences as a child was trying to celebrate little mass, playing priest at home, and then all of a sudden feeling this sense of presence like even though everything around me was falling apart and there was violence, there were possibly tanks on the streets of our cities. Um, nonetheless, there was this presence that was holding me, that was giving me a sense of um, certainty that I could trust it. Um, and it felt like it was more powerful than any government or any violent attempt to, to be controlled. So that was, you know, where I got that to be faithful to that present uh, presence, to, to truly say yes to that presence like those priests did. It means saying no to everything in this world that violates God's compassion, God's love, God's justice. Uh, so our prayers, our contemplation needs to be an engaged contemplation. And also some of those priests were killed, like my parish priest was killed by the government. And so I also early on received this message that to live this kind of a life of consent, uh, to live this kind of a spiritual life, uh, means that there will be consequences. And, and, and some of those consequences, you know, might simply uh, mean that we will not survive. Um, so that was a really profound message that I think I got early on, and that message really shaped how I wanted to live my life. So by the time that I came to this country with my parents as a 17-year-old, initially as an undocumented immigrant, I was very clear about my priorities. I was very clear that whatever my life will be, it needs to be about prayer and service and justice. In your book, uh, you share a couple of stories about Poland in World War II. Now, clearly, you're much too young to have been a part of that, mm -hmm. but you grew up knowing people who firsthand experienced the horrors of that war. And, and you share some of the stories, for instance, uh, the, the story of the priest who gave up food and drink, uh, who gave, rather, food and drink to the agents uh, spying on him. No, I, th I believe that happened, I'm sorry, that happened after World War II. Uh, so let's, let's focus on World War II. What, what stories from that era inspired you? 
there are many stories and those stories were always present because uh, you know my grandparents were alive uh, uh, and they were alive during the war um, my grandfather from my mom's side was uh, in a work camp in Germany from from which he escaped and then walked back home which took him two years uh, my other grandfather's uh, brother um, was starved to death um, uh, by the occupying uh, forces um, and so all of those stories were always around, you know, the stories of violence, the stories of, um, of, 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 of hatred. Uh, all of that was very present in many ways. We've, we've always heard them at family gatherings. Um, so the two stories that I talk about in the book are um, the story of uh, Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was a Franciscan priest um, who was taken to a concentration camp for his uh, activities with the Polish resistance. Um, and his story was that, um, you know, in 1941, I believe, uh, when a prisoner escaped from the concentration camp that he was at um, as a punishment and to discourage future escape attempts, uh, the head of the camp randomly chose 10 men to be killed by starvation. Uh, and as the guards picked out the last of the 10 victims, uh, the man who was chosen just cried out in agony, saying that he had a wife and eight children and that there would be no one to care for them once he was dead. And so Father Kolbe was there as one of the prisoners and hearing that and moved by the words of this man, he simply stepped forward and said that he had no wife and no children and that it was he who should be killed instead of the father of eight. And so the Nazi officer agreed uh, uh, to Father Kolbe's offer, and he was then thrown into a cell with the other nine men and told laughingly that he and the other would wither away like so many tulips. That was the phrase that was used. And when after two weeks of starvation, he was still alive, um, he was simply given a lethal injection. And, you know, there is a story uh, uh, that uh, when finally he died, the guard who went to examine his body reported that the body was just glowing with this strange light and that the cell was just filled with this kind of a sense of peace and holiness. And so that was the first story, you know, about this selfless, holy person who, uh, who said yes in order to uh, relieve some, some, someone else's suffering. The second story that I, that, I, uh, that I share in the book is one of the stories that really 
influenced me quite a bit and is about it's about this famous Jewish doctor uh, and children's author. Uh, his name was Janusz Korczak. Um, and he was known in Warsaw for taking care of Polish and, Jill, and Jewish orphans. Um, uh, Korczak was this kind of an extraordinary figure. Uh, he wrote books, he, uh, he had a medical practice, and he had built several remarkable orphanages that functioned like little children's republics where orphan children had their own uh, democratic government, court system, newspaper, and where each child's voice held the same value as that of an adult. Um, and so what happened uh, to Korczak is that, and I believe it was in 1942, German soldiers came to his orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto to collect his 192 Jewish children. And because Korczak was a very kind of well-known personality all around Europe, he was offered numerous chances to escape, including by a German officer who recognized him as the author of one of his favorite children's books. But Korczak refused, saying that he could not abandon his children. And uh, eyewitness tell us that upon the arrival of the arresting officers, uh, Korczak gathered all of his children, asked them to put on their best and most festive clothes, and together they formed a procession, walking towards the train that took them to the concentration camp. And as Korczak led the group, uh, out holding a little orphan in his arms um, and being followed by almost 200 more kids, their procession, eyewitness tell, eyewitnesses tell us, just radiated victory and celebration. It was as if they were walking towards the very altar of God. They walked peacefully with their he heads raised up. They walked with dignity, with freedom. They walked like they already had won the war, you know? It was as if they were saying to the Nazis, you can kill us, but you can't kill our spirits. You can't kill love. And I remember hearing, you know, uh, from people who witnessed that procession saying that uh, amid all the uprisings that they witnessed during the war, this was by far the most powerful act of resistance they had ever seen. Father, I have to uh, uh, stop you right there because we are out of time for this episode of Common Threads, but we have so much more to get to in your book, so I'm hoping that you'll okay. be able to join us next week. Sure, absolutely. Happy You've been listening that. to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today, Father Adam Bucko talking about his book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. Please join us next week here on WGVU-FM. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. 
In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Father Adam Bucko. He is the author of the new book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. And in this book, he shares a great deal of his life walking with those for whom acts of love, charity, and active sharing are rare gifts. Father Bucko belongs to a movement that embraces both the contemplative life and social activism. Today, we will continue our conversation. And a bit about our guest. Adam has taught engaged contemplative spirituality for two decades on three continents and has co-authored two other books, Occupy Spirituality, A Radical Vision for a New Generation, and The New Monasticism, an Interspiritual Manifesto for Contemplative Living. He is widely known among new monastics, religious and social progressives, and by spiritual seekers across generations through his work with young activists. Committed to an integration of contemplation and just practice, he co-founded an award-winning nonprofit, the Reciprocity Foundation, where he spent 15 years working with homeless and LGBT youth living on the streets of New York City, providing spiritual care, developing programs to end youth homelessness, and articulating a vision for spiritual mentoring in a post-religious world. He currently serves as a director of the Center for Spiritual Imagination at the Episcopal Cathedral of the Incarnation in Garden City, New York. We welcome, once again, to Common Threads, Father Adam Bucko. Hello, Father. Thank you so much. Uh, It's great to be back. Uh, Last week, you shared with us some deeply profound and moving stories about uh, those who were oppressed and ultimately, of course, killed in World War II and the the self-sacrifice that uh, was so present in their lives. There's another story that uh, you also talk about that impressed me, and this certainly must have happened uh, quite a bit later. I believe this is, I believe it took place in Poland. It was about the priest who knew that secret agents were spying on him, Uh, and at some point he, he just walks out and gives them food and drink. It's like, look, I know you guys are stuck here. You have to watch me. I hate to see you hungry. Did that happen in Poland or some other uh, country in the uh, under the Iron Curtain? 
Uh, it happened in Poland, and uh, there is a wonderful documentary about him that is available online called The Messenger of Truth. Uh, Father Jerzy Popiełuszko was his name, and he was a um, uh, best friend of uh, my parish priest, and both of them were killed by the government. Uh, and so in this particular story, and, you know, Father Jerzy Popiełuszko was called by John Deere, an American priest. Uh, he was called a simple, shy, devout priest, but also a towering prophet and mighty nonviolent resistor, the Martin Luther King Jr. of Poland. Um, and I think that that really describes uh, who he was. Um, and uh, yes, he described that story, you know, he. Uh, started what was called uh, the Mass for the Nation, which took place every month outside of his church in Warsaw. Um, and thousands of people would be gathered together and would simply offer prayers for the transformation, would offer prayers even for those who oppressed them, who imprisoned them. Uh, it was this kind of an extraordinary event that would happen on a monthly basis. Um, and as a result, he got in trouble. Uh, the government officials started watching him uh, closely and then eventually kidnapped him and killed him. His body was found, um, his tortured body was found um, somewhere uh, in the river and uh, and that was it, uh, you know, uh, all of that then later on was shown on national television as if to uh, send a signal to everyone that this is what happens to those who, um, who resist the, the government and uh, the party. One other thing I'd like to uh, talk about is you truly are uh, quite eclectic in your spirituality. If, if, if someone reads your book, uh, it's, it's very obvious you are certainly grounded in the Christian tradition. At the same time, you do not deny the wisdom of other traditions. So one example would be that you went on a vision quest, and I'm fascinated to talk about that. Now, your guide on this vision quest was a man named Bearhart. And he was both a Baptist preacher and a medicine man. Now, before we get to your vision quest itself, tell us how does that work? How does a, a man, uh, uh, how is he able to be both a medicine man and a Baptist preacher? I would assume that people within the Baptist fold would look upon a medicine man as an idolater, uh, a fraud, uh, you know, anything but uh, a, a holy man. So do you know the intricacies of how he was able to balance his association with the Baptist church and his uh, tribal affiliation as a medicine man? Yes, so I've actually met quite a few people who had what we would call in today's theological language as multiple belongings um, in terms of their uh, spiritual and religious affiliations. 
for example, one of my early mentors' sister, Vandana Mataji, who lived in a hermitage uh, in the Himalayas, who was both a Roman Catholic nun and a Hindu uh, Swamini uh, ordained within the Hindu tradition as well. So those things are actually quite common, but uh, within official kind of churches and religious traditions, we don't talk about them much. But in my experience, those people who merge in their lives more than one tradition simply uh, live uh, in that space beyond any tradition where they are able to just kind of hang out in the presence of the divine and then see how um, rays of that truth of that light uh, is are present, not in just one, but in all traditions. And of course, some churches in the Christian tradition would see that as something very controversial. Um, I personally don't see that as that controversial uh, because many of my mentors were people from other traditions. In fact, I would have not remained a Christian if it weren't for some of the Hindu monks that I met at the age of 19 who truly uh, enabled me to, to kind of touch the presence of Christ uh, again and to understand it perhaps for the first time in, in, in the kind of fullness that simply captured my heart. So for bare heart, you know, as a Native American, many Native Americans, um, just because of the history that we've had in this country, simply have to live in more than one world. Um, and so he did that. And for him, interestingly enough, those two different identities were not in conflict. Um, and I remember, I mean, when he said the prayer at the beginning of the vision quest, uh, talking about all of his relations, uh, here was someone who really lived it. You had a sense that when he had talked about animals, he was deeply in communion with the natural world. When he talked about Jesus, he embodied Jesus in ways that, that I rarely had seen before or ever since. Or when he talked about the great spirit for him, there was no contradiction, you know? So I'm not quite sure how he navigated the kind of religious affiliations, but he was a free man who was able to show up in many different settings, bringing healing, bringing uh, that energy of compassion that is found uh, in Christ, you know? So you, you took this vision quest under his guidance, and you were left to your own devices in the mountains. You had no food, water, or tent. How did you survive? How, how does that, how'd you get through yeah. this? Yeah, so you normally uh, stay uh, there for a day or two days or three days or four days. You essentially, you select a spot uh, before the vision quest where you will be spending your time. After that, you go through a sweat lodge. Uh, the elder prays for you. The, the elder prays that no one harms you. Um, and then you're sent there and you stay there in that little circle that you've selected until you receive some kind of an insight, some kind of a vision. 
some kind of a sense about what your life needs to be and who do you need to be in this life. And normally people do that maybe once or twice or three times in their lives. This is not a weekly or a monthly practice, so to speak. You do that when you are truly searching for some clarity about what your life needs to be. Uh, so in my case, I stayed out for two days. And after that, I felt that I received what I was looking for. And after that, you go back and the elder, um, you know, uh, listened to what my insight was, and then he interpreted it and really gave me a message that is unfolding uh, even now. Um, it was really one of the most profound experiences that I've ever had. He was able to really capture the meaning of my life, the purpose of my life, and offer me uh, the kind of support that transitioned me into the work with homeless youth on the streets of New York City, and then ultimately into priesthood, you know. Uh, he was a very, very profound and holy and wise man. Um, and for those who are interested in learning more about him, there is a truly beautiful book um, about his life called The Wind is My Mother, written by uh, by someone who was close to him. It's the book based on the interviews that were conducted with him where he told the story of his life and the teachings that he's received. Uh, Berhardt was one of those extraordinary people that I wish more people would know about, you know, because there's so much inspiration in his teachings. So so to be clear, in your time on your vision quest, you really didn't have, have food or water or shelter. Uh, were you allowed to say forage for, for food if you wanted to or was... The... No, you don't drink anything and you don't eat anything. Uh, and he, uh, I was allowed to bring a sleeping bag, uh, but no tent. You just simply stay in one place, which in my case was, uh, you know, on this mountain surrounded by trees and at night a lot of wild animals. Uh, but you're reassured the elders says a prayer for you and he sort of guarantees you that uh, no animal will harm you. And you just sit there. Uh, waiting for an insight, for a vision. And, you know, it's a very frightening experience, especially when, when you hear wolves or other wild animals <laughs> in the middle of the night and you're very much aware that, you know... Sure. No, I... <laughs> the, the vision better come soon, you know, because <laughs> I may not survive this. I, I, think, uh, I think my vision would come as soon as I realized I missed lunch, but... <laughs> yeah no you you it's a time of fasting and prayer sure and you know berhard talked about how his people many of the things that they've received from the creator came through fasting and prayer and he said whenever he comes to a point where he is not able to address a situation or doesn't feel like He's at a loss, uh, and that's the time to go back into fasting and prayer, that we can receive a lot from the Creator just by 
emptying ourselves out and simply learning how to be in this state of receptivity, trust, and deep listening. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. My guest today, Father Adam Bucko, we're talking about his book, Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. So, Father, let's talk about this title. What breaks your heart? Uh, so, uh, the title comes from uh, a friend or a friend and a mentor of mine um, who, uh, who often talked about how uh, in the U.S., uh, we often hear this famous saying that is often attributed to Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. Um, and that somehow following our passion and what makes us feel good uh, will take us into the kinds of lives that we need to have. And my friend would often say, uh, don't follow your bliss, look where that has gotten us to. Uh, instead, follow your heartbreak and let your heartbreak be your guide. And so for me, that was a very important teaching because, you know, uh, my heart breaks when I see homelessness. My heart breaks when I see young people kicked out of their homes because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, because maybe a priest or a rabbi uh, told their parents that that cannot be tolerated. That's when my heart breaks. And so for me, I had this strange experience when I met homeless youth for the first time. I recognized them immediately, and it was almost like, oh, okay, it's your pain that I've been carrying in my body all my life. That means that I need to be with you. Um, you know, uh, I need to learn how to be present to your pain and, uh, and how to uh, respond to that pain, how to guide you into uh, the, the very root of what creates that pain, of what causes that pain, and then Somehow, uh, I understood that my spiritual path, that my way into God uh, is connected to that pain. And in my view, you know, in my work with young people now for over 20 years, um, I've discovered that answering this question, uh, what breaks your heart, uh, can often takes us into the heart of our vocation, of our calling. Uh, and in the process, we often discover that what makes us truly alive, if connected to what breaks our heart, uh, just guides us into who we need to be in this world and how we are meant to serve uh, in this world. And we are living in times of great heartbreak, where a lot of our institutions, religious, political, social, are sort of falling apart. And so there's a lot of work for all of us to do. And all of us, in my opinion, should be spending time listening to what breaks our hearts. So it could be said that if one f follows his or her heartbreak, one could end up 
finding bliss. Yes, and, and in my experience, that's actually how it works. But it's not this kind of superficial bliss. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of bliss that survives heartbreak, that, that survives pain, that, uh, that, that somehow is able to hold pain with compassion. Um, and I think that that is the difference and just following our passion usually keeps us uh, on the surface. And, you know, in the book, I tell a story about uh, the title of this book uh, um, and how it kind of came into being. It's a story about me giving a talk in London uh, at the Center for Peace and Reconciliation and afterwards a young woman came up to me and really wanted to talk about her calling and her vocation. We talked about it. I felt I sort of didn't really offer her anything that meaningful. But the last thing that I said was, why don't you just let your heart break, be your guide, just sit with this question of what breaks your heart. Um, and I forgot about the conversation until months later. She uh, she sent me a message saying that she was sitting with that question, getting really frustrated. Uh, and then one day, really angry, uh, she just turned on the TV and all of a sudden saw um, on the TV screen Syrian refugees arriving on the Greek island of Lesbos. Uh, women, men, children, all scared and broken and oftentimes barely alive, escaping violence of war, you know. And as she saw those images, she immediately just knew what she needed to do. She got on the internet, bought tickets to Greece, and in the next two days was there serving, helping to, uh, to rescue people from the Mediterranean Sea. And she said that being there just broke her heart, broke her into pieces. Um, and brought her to her knees, but it also gave her a new life, she said, and a new joy. Not this kind of, as I mentioned, false kind of joy that is the result of avoiding life's discomforts, but rather a joy that knows difficulties and heartbreaks and yet still survives. And after that, you know, she went back to London and organized that community. Um, as a result, there was a training for young people from many different faith traditions who who then served in some of those refugee camps. And I remember a few months after that, a rabbi from London came to visit me in New York who was part of that network. And it was extraordinary what he was doing. He was gathering Jewish refugees from Arab countries who lived in, uh, in the UK, and all of them were fluent in Arabic, and organizing them where they could become counselors to newly arriving Syrian refugees. Uh, and, and I think that that's what's possible when we, when we really approach our heartbreaks, when we feel into our heartbreaks, when we allow those heartbreaks to, to guide us. Uh, what is the Chautauqua movement that you write about in, in your book? Yeah, so I talk uh, about uh, Catherine uh, Dorothy, who was this um, Russian, uh, really a refugee, um, uh, and was a founder of 
of the uh, of the Madonna House and and Friendship House movement, sort of similar to the Catholic Worker movement. She was a baroness from from Russia who lost everything, who ran away from from the revolution. Eventually, ended up in Canada and later on in the U.S. And she lost everything. They gained everything by becoming a lecturer in that institution, that movement, recalling great stories of of, of, of Russia, you know. Uh, and then at some point felt called to give everything away, uh, to move among the poor and to begin to simply share her life with them. So I mentioned that uh, Shtakwa movement in that context, that that's where she worked as a lecturer and became quite famous uh, for her stories, but then she felt called to let go of all of that. She felt a call to downward mobility. And as a result, she became this extraordinary figure of contemplative renewal and spiritual renewal in the 20th century where her organization, the Madonna House community in Canada, still uh, is thriving, offering this kind of a beautiful spirituality um, from the East of, of Orthodox contemplation uh, that is kind of mixed with the Western spirituality that empowers people to truly serve the world, but in a kind of this prayerful, prayerful way. We just have a, a few more minutes left, Father. So if I could ask you to briefly uh, answer this, uh, and it has to do with a previous book of yours. What is the new monasticism? Yes, so the new monasticism is a movement uh, that quite a few young people are really attracted to. Uh, it's a movement in which we take the gifts of monastic spiritualities uh, and pass them on to young people, to people who live within the context of having to make a living, within the context of having a family and, 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 and children. Uh, and that kind of spirituality enables them to sort of become monks in the world where they can make sure that everything that they do and how they live flows out of that deep center uh, in which they feel this kind of a close intimacy with the divine, where their lives can become an expression of uh, the divine energy of compassion and joy. Um, so in many ways, it's a further development of the monastic spirituality, but the one that doesn't pe take people away from the world, but rather transforms them and empowers them so they can become Christ for others in the world. Well, Father, we want to thank you so very much for your time with us today and last week as well. This has just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I really, really am grateful for being able to be in this conversation and to share with you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. Our guest today, Father Adam Bucko, the author of Let Your Heartbreak Be Your Guide. Please join us next week right here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, 
its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. <laughs>